Hello, welcome to Season 2 of the Wildlife Heroes podcast from the Foundation for National Parks and Wildlife. I'm Gretchen Miller and in this series we're looking at one animal at a time, the role of wildlife rehabilitation in conservation. Today it's bats. Now bats are controversial and they have a general reputation as carriers and spreaders of zoonotic disease with factual misinformation and misunderstanding rampant. Several bat species are threatened. They're at risk of electrocution, entrapment and dog attack and they are profoundly vulnerable to extreme weather events, dying in their tens of thousands in each of our ever-intensifying heat waves. But bats are also critical to pollination on the east coast of Australia. The flying fox megabats, the black, grey-headed, spectacled and little red fruit bats being a significant factor for the diversity of flora we find in this part of the country. So bats are a keystone species, an essential element of our ecosystems and without their work, our forests would struggle to survive. So today, a bit of a special treat. We're here in Lane Cove National Park at the Sydney Wildlife Headquarters, which is also home to the Kukundi Flying Fox Rehabilitation Centre. So we have cages here for baby bats that are soon to go back to the wild. And we also have a flight aviary for adult bats who might have had some sort of injury and are in that intermediate stage before they go back to the wild. That's Vanessa Barrett, flying fox carer and science communicator, and Kukundi is where adolescent bats learn their batitude with fellow graduates before being released. We'll hear more from Vanessa and the bats in the aviaries later in the show. But first we have to chop kilos of fruit for their dinner, and while we do, we're chatting with a bunch of Sydney wildlife bat carers. I'm Susan Smith. I am a Sydney Wildlife Volunteer and I've been doing bats for about two years. Been in the organization for four. I raise pups and now have a couple of adults in my house. I have a huge enclosure there that I take care of recuperating adults who've been caught netting, barbed wire, things like that. And what is this particular room for? This is where we cut fruit. Bats in care have to be fed at night. So we cut apples and pears and then a soft fruit like grapes or melons for them. And depending on how many we have, we can cut anywhere from 20 kilos to 50, 60 kilos. But per day. Per day. The fruit has to be cut every day and then the fruit has to be hung in the cages every day. So how many pups have you got? We've got 35 right now. We have 20 adults. It's kind of a cycle, a nice soft release cycle that takes six weeks to make sure that everybody is um, ready to fly. Most people on the East Coast will be familiar with that awe-inspiring black shadow of flying foxes overhead of an evening as they fan out to find food. Flying foxes, Susan tells me, can travel up to 50 kilometres a night in search of sustenance. They have major, very streamlined digestive systems. They will process food in 20 minutes. So they are our big seed dispersals and um, pollinators for all of the bush that's been burned. They're the ones that are going to regrow it. 
So if we don't have them, we don't have our bush. So they come here, we, we rescue them. They'll be in care at a carer's house for a certain amount of time. If they're caught in netting, it's a required 21 days in care because they have massive amount of energy and streamlined muscles that their injuries may not show up for two weeks. So we don't want to release them too soon. But once they come back into Kukundi, into the large cage, they'll be there for two to three weeks. Everybody's flying around, kind of getting your muscles back going. And then we open up the hatch and they come and go. We still feed inside for two weeks. Then we will close the hatch and we'll support feed for two weeks. So usually the adults can find, they know where the food is. The pups don't. So that's why we have to take an extra step for them. So. Should we get started on some cutting? Let's go. So we will cut Sunday's fruit first, put them in bags and buckets and in the cool room. And then we'll cut today's. And we've got, we take the total kilos for every cage, like small cage has 14.9 kilos of fruit that need to be cut. See along the top, see it has 35 bats. They get 425 grams of food per bat. So that totals out to 14.9. We supplement them with high protein supplement while they're in care. So they get all the nutrients they need. They're mainly blossom and nectar and pollen eaters, but when we're in care, we obviously have to give them fruit and they will chew the fruit, get all the sustenance out of it, and then they'll spit out the pulp. They don't eat anything, they're drinking. and So then we'll put high protein on there and then looks like 31 buckets. And these are our buckets that we have for the pups and the large cage. And that's what we do. Lucille, our fruit shopping machine, and we love Lucille because she makes life so much easier for us. And she was funded with donations, a lot of which came from a lovely family in the States in memory of their mother, Lucille. And a job that we used to take mm, seven or eight hours to do in the peak of the season, we can now get through in two hours. Diane Jenner, volunteer coordinator, introduces us to Lucille, a little old-fashioned kitchen gizmo into the top of which you put handfuls of fruit and squash it through. It makes that chugging, clunking sound, and at the other end, out comes the fruit in neat little cubes. Which is weighed and measured in proportion to... Is the chart there? That's yeah. uh, how we're chopping the fruit. My name's Jodie Lewis, I'm a Sydney Wildlife member and also a bat person, if you want to call it that. <laughs> bat mad. <laughs> so usually what we do on a Saturday is we do a weigh and measure day, so it's a bit like the reverse of Weight Watchers, they need to put on the weight and put on forearm. So we'll get them down, wrap them, they've all got a microchip in them, so we scan the chip so we know who they are and then we will put them on the scales, check their weights, compare it from last week, and that their forearm is also, we measure their forearm, which is their elbow to their wrist. To see that it's growing. See that it's growing, and we can write down any concerns if there's something, and then we can compare it the following week. So it's quite scientific what you're doing. You must, as 
carers start to really get to know the animal, even though you're not a researcher as such, you really understand bat behaviour and bat needs. Yeah, we understand their battitude. <laughs> and when they come into here, they've been with their human mums, so therefore their uh, behaviour is quite sooky and wanting to be on with mum. And then once they've been in here for a while with other bats and then they, they realise that they're not a human and that they are in fact a bat and they've got others there that speak their same lingo, have the fur and the wings like they do, then they start getting their attitude. And that is exactly what we need for them to be able to be releasable and to go out there and propagate and fly and spread seeds and create babies everywhere. It makes them a bat that is then able to go into bat society appropriately. Vanessa Barrett and I go outside to sit near the adolescent flying foxes in their cages. Every now and then one will launch themselves around the aviary and crash against the fabric and the mesh behind us. They're arguing with each other. I can see them punching. So I've been looking after flying foxes for more than 15 years. The first time I saw a bat, I was working at Taronga Zoo and a lady that I worked there with had a baby bat with her and I, I remember this moment so vividly because I could not believe this animal that she had was real. I'd seen bats flying around the sky and I think we all know that silhouette of a bat flying overhead but I'd never seen a little face up close or seen the way they interacted with humans and I was so taken by this animal even though I was working in a zoo surrounded by every species imaginable but just to see this little face looking at her and they had this relationship. And I said to her, how can I do this? I want to do this. And I'd looked after all sorts of, I'd hand-raised birds and possums and things. But from that moment, bats became a real focus. And I've hand-raised a flying fox or two or three every year since then. It's pretty labour-intensive because bats are placental mammals like us. They're not like marsupials. There's high parental investment, and that's quite weird for Australian animals because Australia is a harsh environment where most animals are designed to have really short investment in raising young, and it's quite harsh in the fact that a lot of Australian animals can ditch their baby or terminate the pregnancy, all sorts of things, to cope with a changing environment. But bats are placental mammals, meaning they have high investment you know, they give birth to less young and then spend lots and lots of time. And the other thing about bats is they're really intelligent. So intelligent animals also have high parental investment, a lot of time spent between the parents and the child. So when you get a baby bat, you spend months being the mother and you spend lots and lots of time nurturing them, caring for them, feeding them. And the final stage is what happens here at Kukundi which is kind of the separation between the mother and the baby. So you don't have a bat in care at the moment, though, do you? It's not really the season for it. That's right. So the bat season is very predictable. So every October long weekend, I get all my bat gear out because from any time from pretty much October long weekend onwards, I know that I could get a call to say we need to do a rescue or check an adult bat for a baby or pick up a baby that's been found. And then the mother bats have their babies from October all the way through to around about January. They could have babies with them. So because I'm a Sydney bat carer, the main species is the grey-headed flying fox, but we do have some other species that come into the territory, so occasionally we'll pick up a red flying fox or a black flying fox, but they're more often seen up north. 
We have noticed in the last few years, and it's suspected to be related to climate change, that a lot of those northern bats are starting to show up more often further south. Right, okay, yes, because I was trying to see when I was, you know, doing some research, like where their territories were. Yes. But it seems like it's blurring. It's really blurring and changing. And the first black flying foxes had been showing up in Victoria even in the last few years. You know, when I first started carrying, like that just shows you in the short life of one bat carer's career, we never saw black flying foxes when I started this. What's your personal experience of survival like for yourself and other carers that you that you know the great thing about being a baby bat carer compared to a lot of other species is we have a really high survival rate and a really high release rate so I've only had maybe um, two baby bats die in my care it's very rare they're resilient animals the adult release rate's not as good and that's because things like netting injuries and barbed wire injuries can be so severe that the animals do not They can't get back to the fitness needed. Their wings potentially are so damaged they can't go back to the wild. What's clear from what you're saying there is that rescue and rehabilitation of these pups really has a significant role to play in keeping populations going. I think so. Um, Again, because being placental mammals, one baby bat is very valuable to the ecology. I always think about that when I release my bats. You know, I think that if I release a, a male bat, he will parent potentially you know many many babies every year each mother will parent one baby each year and that baby can live quite a long time how long do they live so in captivity i've actually knew about in captivity that was about 20 years old in the wild more likely it's around 15 years i mean i think the point is is what the new statistics that national parks and wildlife in new south wales are releasing and it's showing that one animal at a time really does matter. So for quite some time, conservation didn't really regard what you as an individual rescuer did because it was just one animal and one animal doesn't matter. And I guess what does matter is habitat and climate and availability of food and and drought and flood experiences, anything that's actually going to disrupt where they live and how they live. But actually, it's clear that when you come in as a rescuer to take care of the animals that are affected by these experiences, it makes a difference for populations, especially because the grey-headed flying fox is endangered. Tell me what it's like for you to hear how many bats were released, were, were rescued and released in 2018 as a carer? I don't think about the big numbers, but in order for my volunteer profession to be appreciated and recognised, I totally get that data is what we need to convince other people, public, the public, the funders, the government, of the worthiness of our work and the scale Um, because the scale is something that hasn't ever been really shared and that scale is where you actually start to get people's attention. Wow, all these people are spending their own time doing this job, rescuing wildlife and I guess if you just ask someone on the street they probably think it was a very small scale operation, just a few few old ladies, you know, in their spare time doing a bit of this and that. But when you actually look at the data, it's it's phenomenal really the impact and I guess I'm curious to think if there wasn't wildlife volunteers what would happen to those thousands of animals that were causing someone an inconvenience or were suffering or needed to be removed from a situation 
I guess that data also tells a story of, wow, like there is actually a real need for wildlife volunteers and we're not substantially funded and we're not really supported broadly by the public. So data for me is is the power to really tell people, this is big business, this is needed, we matter and we actually need help. I guess I've always kind of prioritised their public perception because that's, to me a major threat to flying foxes all those other things that impact them we can have a chance of helping with if people value this animal and currently the value of this animal is low which means all those other threats are not addressed what does daily bat care involve for a pup so it's very similar to a human baby and its needs They're mammals, so they drink milk. So we give them a milk that's specially designed for flying foxes. Their wings grow extremely fast, so their bones and their wings have high demand for nutrients to make sure they're strong. So we give them a milk powder that's full of all the nutrients they need. We have to keep their temperature regulated in the first six weeks because they don't start to thermoregulate until they're yeah around about six to eight weeks. And that's because of the way they would live on their mum. So they have these little furless bellies when they're first born and that furless belly is in constant contact with their mum who maintains that temperature. So I have a, a lovely little like incubator, like a hot box that I put them in for that first period, which makes my life so much easier. In the old days, we used to use heat pads and it could be really fussy to make sure the temperature was right. But yeah, the the other main thing they need is a lot of attention. They need to be comforted, you know, patted, talked to, time spent. We take them out in the sun a lot. The sun does wonderful things to keep their bodies clean. So they stretch and groom in the sun and that kills the bacteria. It's it's a really similar routine to looking after a human baby. The one good thing is that, especially after around six to eight weeks, flying fox mums leave their babies behind at night And this is one of my favourite things because if you're looking after a kangaroo or a wombat, it is months of getting up all through the night to feed. Whereas baby flying foxes do not expect to be fed at night um, because their mum's not there. So they would stay in a little creche of other baby flying foxes in the colony and mum's gone for the night. So, yeah, it's a really good animal to hand raise for that reason. (laughs) You know, I work full time. So in terms of species that are compatible with my life, they are really compatible. I can fit them in around a busy day. I can get a full night's sleep. You know, my friends who have especially pinky, little tiny pinky kangaroos and wombats, they are always tired. What was it like when you realised the intimacy of the bond that could be formed here? I always say that they're like dogs and people get that when you say that because everybody's experienced bonding with a dog and looking into a dog's eyes and seeing that sentient being and noticing that they're just as interested in you as you are in them you know most of the time when we stare at animals when we bird watch when we go to the zoo it's a one-way thing they don't really care about us at all whereas bats are very interested in us I think it's another really attractive thing about being a flying fox care exactly what you said that you are allowed to bond with them and Sometimes, you know, when you're looking after some other animals, you have to go to all lengths to disguise yourself. You know, like you'll feed birds with gloves and things on so they don't recognise there's a human and they don't form that bond. You know, it's, it's a bit of a disaster if you imprint on many species and you've ruined their chances of survival. But with a flying fox, if you don't bond, it's really noticeable when you put them into the crash cage when you come here. They will be... 
unsettled and well anyway it's it causes huge issues they haven't had that bonding experience but yeah when you get a baby back the first few days are quite tough because they're traumatized it's just horrific they've been taken away from their mum usually in in an awful circumstance and they'll be restless and upset and not wanting to eat and possibly in pain for various reasons but it doesn't take long a few days of routine and affection they start to realize quickly that you're there to help them and they start to relax and it doesn't take them long to recognize you as the parent and that does sound like a crazy bat lady thing to say and sometimes when people see that they think it's odd that you've got a bond with a bat but that's why I come back to dogs because no one thinks it's odd to bond with a dog and to have a friendship with a dog but it's exactly the same thing. They see you as their mother, they're looking to you for comfort and security, and you need to make sure you provide that. How do you know when a bat is settled and when that baby bat has gotten past the first couple of days and is relaxing, as you say? Really, we kind of use science to test that a bat has settled and it's, that it's thriving. So we, we weigh them, measure them. If it's sleeping, if it's going to sleep and sleeping as much as it should, all those things that show that it's thriving. So yeah, weight gain is the main indicator we use actually of happiness, which sounds weird, but if they're relaxed and happy, (laughs) just like us, (laughs) if they're relaxed and happy, they will eat well. I've had quite a few over the years where they're not putting on the weight, they're not sleeping well, you know, something's not quite right and that will prompt you to do further investigation. You might need to go to the vet and find out what's going wrong. The baby that I had, just this summer gone, Jeremy, um, who you met, he came into care, seemed fine, um, because remember they're what we call prey animals, so bats, animals that other animals want to eat, such as powerful owls. So prey animals are good at masking pain and masking issues, and this little baby was doing a great job of that. He came into care looking fantastic, bright-eyed, happy, chirping. But then within a few days, the burn, his mother had been electrocuted, the burns on his body started to appear. And over the next two weeks, they got worse and worse to the point where he lost large amounts of skin. And so I had to get that sorted really quickly with pain relief. I went to the vets and they gave him fluids because dehydration is a big problem for bats. They gave him really powerful drugs that he loved, but that took months to resolve, but it all healed beautifully. Lost a bit of skin along the edges, but yeah, perfectly fine for release (laughs) what's it like farewelling your bat I probably should say sad but I've never been sad (laughs) to say goodbye I every year look forward to having a baby bat in my life but I also every year look forward to the day that they go off to bat school I feel it's so much satisfaction by the time they're at that point they're starting to go through what I call the adolescent period where they're kind of getting loud and annoying and not so excited to see you anymore anyway you know they they're separating from you and so I feel it's always kind of natural the time has come just a very clear moment in time Can you talk a little bit about what bats do in our broader ecology? The role of flying foxes in the ecosystem has become an obsession of flying fox carers. And I think it's only become our obsession because of our constant need to justify why we are spending time on an animal that so many people do not like. So 
in a weird way, all of us Flying Fox carers have started using this ecosystem services line to defend flying foxes. So flying foxes co-evolved with Australian forests, particularly along the East Coast, and everything about those forests and flying foxes matches up in terms of how those trees produce seeds and pollen and the senses that bats have for finding food. They all work together beautifully. We need flying foxes if we want forests, if we want our native forests to flourish and maintain their genetic diversity. Bats travel such long distances, which is fantastic for plants who can't travel because that's how the plants achieve that genetic diversity. The the bats take the pollen and the seeds long distances and mix the genetics up and down the coast. And of course, we've just had those terrible bushfires just a year ago. We've lost vast amounts of forest. So our bats actually can play a really important role in helping regenerate those spaces. If we lose bats, we do lose hundreds of species of native Australian plants. The loss of bats, which we are seeing at an alarming rate, the number of bats is is decreasing before our eyes, that will have an impact on East Coast forests. Wildlife rehabilitators don't just look after animals, they field calls from the general public. How can they use that opportunity to talk about the nature of bat colonies and, and say how to live with them? When you think about a group of bats in your neighbourhood, yes, it's annoying. There's just no two ways about it. I mean, I would argue that it's no more annoying than a group of humans in the, the mess and noise they leave behind. But Aside from that, I think, look, with any kind of communication or when you're trying to win someone over to something they don't fully understand, the answer's really simple. And I've seen it work time and time again. Everything changes when you have an up-close encounter. When people meet a bat up-close, their entire opinion, views you know, the letter writing that they do about their local bat colony, everything changes. We see that little face, we realise it's a sentient being. They're cute, they're aesthetically pleasing up close and suddenly we have empathy for that animal. Uh, Is that what you've witnessed happen? Because the power of a colony and somebody disliking a colony is, is strong. Some of the main bat haters in Sydney that I've talked to on the phone are people who grow fruit so so normally when you get the call they're very angry oh flying foxes got caught in the netting on my fruit tree and and you sort of go out there and you know it's going to be hostile especially because a lot of time you have to cut the netting but the most amazing thing that happens is even with the most hardened bat hater when they see the little face you know you cut the netting and you you have this big ball of tangled bat when that little face appears out of that ball of tangled netting there's I have never seen anyone who doesn't react to seeing that face they see the fear in this face or they see the pain and it's just human nature we respond to that and we feel sympathetic and 99% of the time they will be open to suggestions to say why don't you change the netting that you use so this doesn't happen again Because they don't want to see that suffering, even if they don't like bats. What about zoonotic disease? Because that's the other Mm. big issue that people are really concerned Mm. about when it comes to bats and the public is really fearful about. 
Bat carers all need to be vaccinated for rabies and that's because everyone thinks we have no rabies in Australia but actually Australian bat lysivirus is a type of rabies that flying foxes and some microbats do carry and it's it's a terrible disease. You know, bats are really amazing at being hosts to disease. COVID has made us aware of that. There's many, many diseases that can affect humans that bats carry. The good thing is that if you're vaccinated against rabies, that protects you as a bat carer. And we say to people, no touch, no risk. So don't touch bats if you're not vaccinated. And the other thing that we really try to stress is if you've been bitten or scratched by a bat, maybe by accident, and that does happen with fruit tree netting and things like that, you just need to get medical assistance so that you get vaccinated. But the disease issue is another reason people hate bats and why it's a source of opposition. But on the other hand, how many people have died since 1996? I've got it down as three human deaths from rabies caught from a bat. Yes, yeah, statistically, a lot of Australian native animals, when you look at the stats, they don't actually cause as much harm as people think, you know, like even snakes and sharks and all those famous ones don't cause the number of deaths comparable to something like horses, um, cows and even bee stings. We just really think that education is the main solution. Of the three people who've died from lysivirus, the first two were bat carers and that was before we ever knew the disease existed. So it goes to show that as soon as we knew there was this disease and we needed to protect ourselves, no one else has died from it since. So that's just education, awareness and workplace health and safety. I mean, Australia has the highest rate of pet ownership in the world. We are a, a country that loves animals and wants to help animals. And, and live close with them. We do. We, 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 so th oh, that's why I always think actually... The gap between what we do with wildlife and what everyone's already doing with domestic animals, it's not like a huge gap to cross. So I think what we really just have to work on is exposure. What's going to happen next for these guys behind us who have been crashing around, smacking into the fence, doing what bats are meant to do? They're kind of in boot camp, fitness boot camp. They need to exercise as much as they can, build up their strength, build up their fitness for those big long flights they're going to be doing once they go back into the wild. So they're flying across quite a large distance and then crashing and landing on the sides of the cages, exactly the same way that you see bats crash landing into fig trees. But yeah, I think it's quite amazing to think that those bats in there don't realise that any day now, their new life in the wild is going to start. Vanessa Barrett there, ending our morning at the Kukundi Wildlife Shelter here on Wildlife Heroes, one animal at a time. Brought to you by the Foundation for National Parks and Wildlife and supported by the New South Wales Government through its Environmental Trust. Listeners, as always, there's more information on our website and in our show notes. And don't forget to check out our other episodes, The Big Picture of Wildlife Carer Data, A Day with a Wildlife Vet, and Features on Raptor and Koala Rehabilitation. And our first series is all about care and mental health and how to look after it. I'm Gretchen Miller. Hope you'll join us again.